pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would teach us to love. Teach us to love as you do, with perfection, with joy, with pleasure in our hearts. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, our scripture passage is Exodus 20, verse 13, but um, we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew chapter 5. So if you'd like to turn there, you'll find it on page 810, 811 of the Pew Bible. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26 and 43 to 48. Hope you were able to either go to bed an hour early or in some fashion get an extra hour of sleep this morning. I guess the sermon will be the test to see who actually got their sleep in over the last night. Well, we're at the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder. And uh, I will just say up front, there are going to be many things left unsaid, many ethical issues that cannot be investigated today. That's not our point. We're trying to get to the root of the matter, which is what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5. And so uh, the commandment from Exodus 20 verse 13 is you shall not murder. Simply two words in the Hebrew. This is Jesus' explanation of it. Chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and in the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Boxing used to be the primary sport that people would watch to see a couple of guys beat each other's brains in. A number of years ago, that began to switch over from boxing, which wasn't quite exciting enough, to ultimate fighting. Ultimate fighting is basically putting two men who are very well-honed athletes inside of a cage and letting them fight with Whatever means necessary, fist fighting, wrestling, martial arts, anything that they can come up with to beat the other. It is something that whenever it comes on as an advertisement on the television, which unfortunately is often, I very quickly change it. Uh, It's something that has become very sickening to me, and it's partly because of just seeing what it's like, but also... Because of something that happened a number of years ago before it became really popular. 
number of years ago on the news, I watched an account of a fight in somewhere in Southeast Asia where two men were fighting each other and one pinned the other to the mat on his stomach, pinned his arms underneath him so that he could not defend himself and began to pummel him in the back of the skull, not only until he was unconscious, but until he was brain dead. And the man died later at the hospital. Killing is grotesque. No matter how you say it, killing is grotesque. This is one commandment of all the commandments that most everyone in the world can agree upon. Nearly everyone would say taking an innocent life is wrong, and yet our world is filled with violence, isn't it? The world is filled with violence. You merely turn on the TV. You look at the video games that are out there today. Uh, School shootings, drive-by shootings, road rage. Referees are killed by irate parents. Violence is everywhere in our culture. Murder has been part of the world since the very beginning. Cain killed his brother Abel. One of Cain's descendants, Lamech, boasted of the fact that he took revenge on someone who struck him and wounded him. He boasted in it. He was bloodthirsty for revenge. And not much has really changed. And nothing really would change apart from the gospel. If it were not for the gospel, a world of violence is all that we would know. But it's the work of Jesus in the gospel that turns everything on its head so that God is removing murder, removing killing from the world. Jesus came into this world to give life. He said in John 10.10, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So the gospel comes into people's lives, turns everything upside down, so that now we want to give life, we want to guard life, we want to impart life, rather than take it or destroy it. So the commandment is you shall not murder. And what we want to look at first is the scope of this commandment. What's the scope of it? You shall not murder. Now the ESV translates a Hebrew word that simply means to kill translates it as murder. There's numerous Hebrew words for killing. This one is not merely a general word for all killing, but you might say unlawful killing. After all, the Bible does warrant some taking of human life. For instance, self-defense, capital punishment, just war. Now I say just war, that is in the sense of being justified. Not all war is justified. Just war is a self-defense type of war. We could investigate each one of those things, but we do not have time this morning. But what the commandment means when it says you shall not kill or murder, it says you shall not kill unlawfully. And that's why the translators chose the word murder. But we as a society, as a world, have become both creative and comfortable with murder creative and comfortable with murder the bible and our civil code recognize that there are numerous ways to kill people there's first degree murder premeditated murder what happened on 9-11 was premeditated well planned and well executed and killed some 3,000 people there's voluntary manslaughter where someone 
kills another person in a fit of rage. Their emotion overcomes them. A, a husband comes home to find his wife engaged in an adulterous affair. And he kills the man. There's involuntary manslaughter or reckless homicide. You drink too much. You get in your car and you accidentally kill someone. There's other forms of murder. There's euthanasia. which Some people would call mercy killing. People get to the point where their health is too bad or maybe they just lived beyond the years that they should live and someone makes the decision it's time to terminate their life. There's a difference between terminating treatment and terminating a person. There's suicide. Where we kill ourselves. I've known a number of people who have taken that route because life became too oppressive for them. And certainly there's abortion. Since Roe v. Wade case in 1973, there have been tens of millions of babies that have been murdered in this country alone. Now, the Bible is very clear that unborn life is precious to the Lord. David writes in Psalm 139, for you form my inner part, my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my eye, uh, uh, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were, there were none of them. Unborn life is precious to the Lord. And I think our consciences tell us the very same thing. There's an instinct that every mother has when they find out that they're pregnant. That there's something alive inside of me. There's an instant connection. I remember as a father, it really wasn't until that first ultrasound where I saw the baby, that it really became real for me. But for Sally, it was very different. It was instantaneous. There was a connection. It was a sense that there's a life growing inside of me. And our conscience tells us the same thing, that life, even unborn life, is precious to the Lord. I remember when I was 21 years old, I volunteered to go on a youth retreat to be a chaperone with a youth group. And I met a young lady, her name was Amy. We got to be friends and at some point we began discussing sort of our life stories and she confessed to me that she had not been a Christian growing up. She got involved with a young man from her high school. They became engaged in a physical relationship and eventually she became pregnant. And for her, the only way out was abortion. She looked at me and she said, you know, they don't tell you the feelings of guilt and the feelings of shame that you will have when you do this. By God's grace, she eventually got in contact with some Christians who shared the gospel with her. And she came to the point where she understood the forgiveness that Jesus has to offer, even for something as horrific as that. She began to at least experience the beginnings of a healing that Jesus can give for a wound like that. Abortion is not merely a political matter. It's a personal matter. It testifies to us that there's something wrong with it. We cry out 
against it. It kills, it damages, and yet, let me say this. Any woman here today who hears my voice, if this has ever been part of your past, you need to know that there is grace and sufficient grace, forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ to all those who would have done even that. Turn to Him. But lest we think that there are only outward forms of murder, Jesus presses the matter further home to us in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 21, He says, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says it's not merely the physical act that is the problem. The real root cause of murder is anger. It's hatred within the human heart. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, there's certainly righteous anger. but Most of our anger is not righteous. Most of our anger just comes from within a sinful heart. And we might ask, why do we get angry? Well, there's two main reasons the Bible gives. The first is this. We get angry because we don't get what we want. We don't get our desires. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say, What? causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder when we do not get what we want we get angry ken sandy in one of his books called resolving everyday conflict tells a little story about how he wanted to keep his family safe so he hired a locksmith to come and install a deadbolt lock on one of the doors in their house. He got home from work that day and he looked and inspected the workmanship of the locksmith and what he found was the locksmith had actually sent one of his uh, under uh, hirelings, uh, an intern, to do the job and had sort of carved out too much wood in the door frame and it looked terrible. So what does he do? He goes down to the locksmith and he's going to give him a piece of his mind. He walks in, There's the locksmith, a couple of customers at the counter, and he's thinking this is the perfect time. Right in front of other customers, surely he's going to want to uh, rectify the situation because he doesn't want to lose any business. So he walks right up, he puts on his lawyer hat, and he begins to blast the man for all the wrongdoing. But the man doesn't back down. And he turns around and he gives it right back to him, and they get into this great shouting match between the two of them. And finally... He walks out in embarrassment and leaves. He was angry because he didn't get what he wanted. And a lot of times we're angry simply because we didn't get it our way. We didn't get what we loved. We didn't get what we expected. We didn't get what we had hoped for. But there's another reason the Bible says that we get angry. It's for revenge. Romans chapter 12 verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now why does God write that? Because He knows we want vengeance. We want payback. It's easy 
to find ourselves hating those who promote abortion, those who want to make our country different than its heritage. We get angry at those who make us late for an event. We're angry at those who dump waste into our rivers. We're angry at all sorts of people for all sorts of things, and we want revenge, we want payback. Certainly it's right to seek justice, but it's never right to simply hate within our hearts. Anger ends up expressing itself in all sorts of ways, slander, gossip, cursing, name-calling, shouting, criticism, withdrawing and stewing on it. And Jesus says, this is murder. It might as well have been just like that ultimate fighting championship where one guy beat the other to the death. It's murder. Jesus says we're in danger of the fire of hell. And the reason that he exposes this so that his people can see, look what you're in danger of. Look at what you're doing to each other and look how much you need me. Jesus was killed. Jesus was murdered. Jesus was crucified because you and I are murderers. And we need forgiveness. And in Christ, it is freely offered. But There's a second thing we need to consider here. Not just the scope, but the requirement of the command. The requirement is obviously not to murder, but there's more to it here. First of all, it's to love. Verse 43 says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus is quoting here from Leviticus chapter 19. Loving your neighbor is nothing new to Jesus. It was part of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is written by Jesus too. Love your neighbor. That's what we are called to do. And as it pertains to this commandment, what we might be saying is this. We are to guard life. We are to protect life. We are to promote life rather than destroying it. That's what love looks like. How do we do that? First of all, you might say we ought to guard and protect and promote our own lives in a biblical sense. We take good care of our health. We don't let our bodies just run down. Rather, we watch after them because they're gifts from the Lord. We care for them. We're to rest when God gives us opportunity to rest. Some of us need to find recreation so that we can relieve stress in our lives. The Bible says we're to have joy in our hearts because a joyful heart is good medicine. Obedience to the Lord is also a way in which we take care of ourselves because when we obey Him, we find that our life is better. It's more healthy and whole and righteous. But we also need to give life to other people. Maybe you see a student at school. The student who is a bit of an outcast and off to the side Nobody ever talks to that student. And you have an opportunity to impart life, to bring the joy of the gospel to them. There are other things that we could do. We could care for the sick and dying. And some of you know what that's like. You brought life, you might say, into their homes. There's foster care and adoption. There's fighting for righteousness in the political sphere. There's words of life that we can give. Words of encouragement and most especially the words of the gospel. Jesus has the words of eternal life and we can share them 
with other people. But notice that Jesus doesn't stop with simply loving our neighbor. He goes on here to say this. He says, you shall love your, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In other words, that's the Pharisee's interpretation. So I'll love my neighbor, but it's okay to hate those who are not like me. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, love even your enemies, those who persecute you, those that you would consider your arch rival. Yes, there are difficult people to get along with in life, and it's easy to simply write them off. It's messy to have them into our lives. And yes, we need to maybe guard ourselves in a proper fashion and put good biblical boundaries upon our lives. But we are never authorized to simply write off people and say, I will not love you. Jesus says we're to love even our enemies. Verse 46 goes on to say, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. They're the, they're the scum, the tax collectors. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Isn't it true that terrorists, the same terrorists who would knock down buildings, protect their own? Jesus says any sinner can do that. But it's my people who are to love even those who are their enemies. Might, love might be expressed with a gentle rebuke at times. Love might be expressed with finding something positive to say when you could say so many negative things about a person. Love might be expressed by going out of your way to assist somebody. Love might be expressed by praying for those that you despise. In fact, Jesus says that. Pray for those who persecute you. Why does Jesus command that in particular? Because He knows the powerful work of prayer for our enemy and also for ourselves. Prayer seeks the good of someone else. Prayer, you might say, is the most extreme form of self-control. I could curse this person. I could call upon God to curse this person. Or I could go to the Lord and say, Lord, bless this person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. In other words, through prayer, what we're choosing to do is be part of someone's redemption, salvation, transformation, what we're saying is, I love you so much even though you're my enemy. I want you to be glorified. And I'm going to pray to the Lord for your well-being. And when we do, we find that the Lord transforms us. Jesus wants us to love as He has loved us. Hasn't Jesus prayed for us? Hasn't Jesus served us while we were yet enemies? Christ died for us. And he's saying this is the very thing that we are called to do. And our loving of our enemy is a reflection of Jesus' love for us. Jesus' love is what needs to melt our hearts so that we are able to love those that we would consider our enemy. It's not until we come to the point where we can say, I don't, I don't deserve anything better 
than that person over there that I can begin to love them the way Christ loved me. So the requirement of the command is love, but secondly, it's to be reconciled. Jesus says in verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now this person is the good churchgoer, right? He's at worship. He's offering his sacrifice. He's doing just what he's supposed to be doing. Unfortunately, he's ignoring the fact that he is at odds with someone else. That he's been an utter failure in his relationship with someone else. And all of a sudden it dawns on him, I need to be reconciled with that person before I dare come before the Lord and say, please forgive me that I might be reconciled to you. And so what we find here is Jesus saying it's imperative that you be reconciled to your brother, that person close to you, a fellow believer. In other words, we cannot be indifferent, but we must pursue reconciliation. Not only that, he gives another example. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the card and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If the first one says, don't be indifferent towards people. The second one is saying this, you cannot ignore people. You can't even ignore your accuser. The first person was your brother. This is your accuser. You cannot ignore them because ultimately you'll find yourself locked up in prison. Jesus says, seek reconciliation, seek to make peace in whatever way you possibly can. Not everybody wants to be reconciled with you. Granted. But as Paul says, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. It's not enough to say, do not murder. Jesus wants us to love. He wants us to be reconciled. Because the kind of life that we're living in this world is not the kind of life that God created us to have. He created this life for relationships with unity and with love. And What we're to do now is to bring about the first fruits of what that redeemed relationship is to look like. So that we're declaring forth the praises of God. Which leads us to the last thing here. It's the reason for the commandment. The reason for the commandment. Verse 48 says this. This is Jesus' summary statement about his exposition of the law. He says this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Talk about a weighty statement. Oh, and by the way. If what I have said isn't enough, be as perfect as your heavenly Father is. It's an impossible task. And Jesus is driving people to Himself to say, your only hope is in Me. Your only hope is in My forgiveness. Your only hope is in My grace. And when people come to Jesus Christ and they learn of His grace, then all of a sudden, this weighty burden of being perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect all of a sudden turns into 
the thing that we delight in the most turned into our joy so that we want to seek the Lord and live for Him. Verse 45 says it this way, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We evidence the fact that we are sons of God, daughters of the King, when we embrace His commands and live like He does. So who is God? What is He like? Verse 45 says it this way, for He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The sun is shining out there right now and it's shining on both God's people and it's shining on people who we would consider to be wicked, the unjust. Those who <clears throat> rebel against the Lord and fight against Him. The rain that nourishes the earth, that grows the crops so that we can have life, comes down on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. God here displays His love towards all of humanity. Now we need to distinguish here between God's general benevolence on all mankind and His salvific or saving love towards His people. But the point being here that what God the Father does is love everyone. And in doing that, He is showing His character to the world. Life is given by God. Only God possesses immortality. He can give life. He can take it away. And murder robs the Lord of His sovereign divine authority and right to be in charge of life. Why does He give life? Why does He show kindness to everyone? It's because He's made us all in His image. And we as His image bearers are to proclaim His praises in the world. Listen to a quote by one writer. A person may not be killed for this reason, that he is either actually or potentially someone who declares God's praise. And therefore, anyone who kills another person therefore robs God. Everybody in the world, Christian or non-Christian, is made in the image of God. And even a non-Christian, he's saying, is either someone who is able actually or potentially to declare forth the praises of God. How could we dare rob God of a life that would honor Him and exalt Him through murder? You see, the reason for the command is the praise of God and the revelation of His character in the way in which we live. To love people created in God's image is to honor Him and to show that we are sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Ken Sandy, in his book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, he came back again and shared the conclusion of that story when he went to visit the locksmith. He realized when he got out in the parking lot that what he had done was wrong and he stood there with guilt and shame and wrestling within his own heart. What should he do? He knew he should go back. He knew he should apologize. And he finally came to the point where he just prayed, Lord, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world. I know you want what you want me to do. I just can't go back in there. Please help me. 
He said God turned his thoughts to bigger things. And he started meditating and contemplating on the graciousness of God. How Christ had bore his sins. And that now he had a spotless record before the Lord. He declared to himself, I'm forgiven in Christ. I don't need to wear a mask of self-righteousness. I must not withhold from others the forgiveness God has lavished on me. And so he went back into the store and he walked up to the owner and he confessed his sins. He said the man's heart was softened and they reconciled together. But what was most interesting is some point later, that locksmith surprisingly showed up at Ken's church. And Kid said there they could celebrate the forgiveness and the reconciliation of Jesus together. Love, forgiveness, reconciliation, peace. These are the gifts of God, our Heavenly Father to us. He says those are the things that we ought to give away to others. That we might promote life. In this world. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God. We would all tell you today. And agree with you. That murder is wrong. And Lord we would even admit. That we get angry. That at times we are filled with hate. In our hearts. Lord help us to see. That that is just as guilty. As if we had done the act ourselves. Cleanse us, Lord, and renew within us a right spirit. Give us a joy in the gospel, a sense of assurance of your forgiveness, of your delight in us, of your benevolence towards all mankind. And help us to be your sons and daughters that live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.